Kids have a great time in the back. Uh, if you're remaining in the room, I'd encourage you to turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 24. Uh, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can follow along in the bulletin uh, or on the screen behind me as well. Um, one of our favorite hikes to go on with our kids uh, is over at Lake Roland Park. I don't know if you've ever been over there before. Uh, but if you take the upper trail at Lake Roland Park, you can find this uh, obscure little trail that's sometimes easy to miss. And if you hike down that obscure little trail, you find what we call in the Donahue House the cave. Now, it's not really a cave. Uh, it's more just like a rock outcropping um, that sort of looks like a cave. Um, but we've enjoyed that hike and we've done it uh, a ton of times before. Um, and so one time we thought we, we should show these kids what a proper cave is really all about. And so we drove about an hour west of here to a place called Indian Echo Caverns. I think, it's, I think that's what it's called. And this is one of those caverns where you can hike down into the caverns and they've got the stalactites and the stalagmites and the temperature stays the same in that cavern all day long. And so uh, for our kids, it was a, a wide-eyed experience. They had one picture of what a cave was and now they got a real baptism on what a true cave uh, was really all about. Maybe you've been to one of those places, maybe you've hiked to a cave before, but a cave is the setting of our story today. And when you think about it, uh, caves have played a prominent part in history throughout the years. Um, Connie and Jim and I, along with Becca, once took a, a mission trip uh, down to uh, the, the Cherokee Reservation in the mountains of North Carolina. And if you know anything about that reservation, they are the, the eastern band of the Cherokee. These were the folks that, that when the Trail of Tears came and the forcible removing to Oklahoma came, they were the ones that refused to go. And so what they did is they hid in the mountains and they hid in the caves and that became their refuge for them, the way they preserved their own people group and their own lives. And so if you go to the, the reservation now, these, these caves, these mountains uh, take on sort of a sacred space for them because they were such an important part in the chapter of their lives and the chapter of their people. Well, our passage this morning takes place in another cave that probably became sacred, in a sense, to at least one man uh, named David. Uh, David was uh, found in these caves a refuge in a wilderness period of his life. If you know anything about the story, at that point, King Saul was sitting on the throne of the land, and he was chasing after David. He was hunting after David. He entered into David's cave to sit on another type of throne. You'll see what I mean by that in a moment. And David had an opportunity at that point to take Saul's life, but he didn't take it. And so what made him decide not to take Saul's life in that moment? So we turn in our passage uh, to 1 Samuel 24, and I'll be reading verses 8 to 22. This is God's word. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my lord, the king. And when Saul looked up behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. 
See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul... Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you're more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you've declared this day how you dealt well with me in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you've done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for your word. Thanks for uh, its power. Thanks that we get to meditate on it for the next few minutes, Lord. And I pray that, that you would take the, the words of, of my mouth and make them a, a blessing to those that are around, Lord. May your spirit attend the reading of your word and the meditation of your word to apply it uh, to our hearts here this morning, Lord. Only your spirit can do that. So we invite the spirit to come and speak to our hearts through your word. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So we've spent some time in the Old Testament over the last couple weeks, and we've looked at this uh, Hebrew people group. If you were with us last week, we saw them in the wilderness, and all sorts of different things happened to them in the wilderness. Well, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, they finally get to Canaan, the promised land, which is a land that was flowing with milk and honey. God delivers the land uh, into their hands, and they get to occupy that land. It becomes their land, and after several uh, centuries, they start looking around at the other nations that are around them, and they see, well, these other nations have kings, and we want to be like these other nations that are, we want a king too. And so the Lord obliged, and Saul was the man that they got. He was anointed the king of the people of Israel, even though he was a bit reluctant about this whole thing. When the coronation day came, Saul was uh, hiding in the luggage for fear of the people and fear of the job. Well, what you learn very quickly is Saul wasn't a great king, um, and it doesn't take us long to figure that out. Uh, He demonstrated countless times his inability to trust in God and uh, letting the people's opinion of him become more important than God's opinion of him. And he put uh, other things first before God. And so after a series of events, uh, the Lord decides to anoint another person 
to be the king of the Israelite nation. And that person was David. David was the youngest son of Jesse. He was the runt of the litter, and yet he was chosen to be the next king of Israel. But the timing of it is a little bizarre because he was chosen to be the king, and yet Saul was still sitting on the throne. And so what that meant for David is that he had this calling to be the king, but he had to remain in obscurity, at least for an undefined period of time. So he remained in that obscurity, and then all of a sudden his stock shoots up one day. You've heard the story of David and Goliath. David gives uh, uh, Goliath into the hands of the Israelite people. The Philistine nation is routed uh, thanks to David and his courage. And so his stock and his popularity immediately begin to rise, and Saul has a problem with that. Saul starts feeling threatened by David's presence, and so he makes a plot to kill David, and that plot becomes uncovered to David, and what does David have to do? David's got to run away. He's got to flee. He's got to go into exile to save his own life. Even though he was the Lord's anointed, even though the throne in every essence belonged to him, he would need to spend some time in the wilderness before he ascended to the throne. This summer, our theme has been finding God in the wilderness, and we've been looking at a staggering number of biblical characters who were driven into the wilderness at some point in their lives, and God met them in the wilderness, and he changed their lives. We've been reflecting on the fact that you and I are not all that different. Maybe you and I are not driven necessarily into a physical wilderness or a a physical desert place. But we know we've all been driven into periods of circumstantial wilderness, times where we feel very alone, times where we feel vulnerable, where we feel empty or dry or thirsty. We just feel absolutely spent in every way. We feel spent emotionally, spiritually, and physically. And the question has been, how do we find God when we are in those places? Or even better yet, How does God find us when we are in those places? How does he change us through those wilderness periods? This is why Eugene Peterson wrote, we can't be naive about the wilderness. It is certainly a dangerous place, but we must never avoid the wilderness because it can also be a wonderful place. We get 15 stories of David when he spent his chapter of his life in the wilderness, 15 different stories. And this one that we just read happens in a cave. And we only read the second half, so let me set the scene of what's actually going on here. David's in the wilderness, uh, wilderness of En Gedi. He's hiding in the the caves and in the, the forest and in the mountainous region there. Saul has come out with 3,000 troops, 3,000 troops to find David. Now, David has had the fortune of sort of gathering around him a motley crew type of warriors and individuals, but still they are no match for the 3,000 troops that Saul has brought into the wilderness of En Gedi in order to find David. Our passage tells us that Saul, one, at one moment, uh, enters into a cave to relieve himself, is what the scriptures tell us. And what he doesn't know is that David is actually in the back of the cave. And what's remarkable is that David, instead of killing Saul at that moment, uh, which no one would have blamed him for, instead of killing Saul, he decides to spare 
Saul's life. Instead, what he does is he cuts off a portion of his robe to demonstrate to Saul later on his own generosity and his commitment to the throne. And so what we see here is that David has sort of changed. We don't see the sort of impetuous kid that we saw uh, in the David and Goliath story. We see that he's learned a few things. Life has taught him a few things. In some ways, David maybe has matured a bit because of his time in the wilderness. But probably more than anything, what David has learned here is the hard lesson of trust. The hard lesson of trust. And that's what I want us to consider this morning. How David learned to trust God with his circumstances and how he learned to trust God with his with his for his salvation. And so these are lessons that David could only learn in the wilderness, and that's probably true for you and I as well. First, what I want us to consider is that David had learned to trust God with his circumstances, to trust God with his circumstances. The writer of Ecclesiastes says this. He says, "'In the day of prosperity, be joyful.'" And in the day of adversity, consider that God has made the one as well as the other. He's made the one as well as the other. I think one of the maybe the hardest things about the wilderness, whether it's David's situation or our situation, one of the hardest things about the wilderness is the recognition that God is the one who's put us there. And he's put us there for a reason. What we believe is that life doesn't come at us randomly. What we believe is that there is a plan and a purpose to everything that happens. Everything that happens to you is in somehow part of God's sovereign plan and his purposes, part of his divine will for you. And frankly, when you think about it, that can become the occasion for maybe a little anger towards God or even bitterness towards God if we are honest with ourselves. We might ask God, why on earth did you put me in this situation? What possible good could come out of this circumstance that I find myself in? Why don't you provide me with some sort of relief in my circumstances? Why don't you give me an escape from these circumstances that I'm in, no matter how much I ask for it? Maybe sometimes we even wonder, God, how on earth could you be glorified by this mess that I find myself in. I'm sure David at points must have felt this way. Maybe it was anger, maybe it was bitterness, maybe it was just some really charged questions he sent before the Lord. But David didn't ask to be anointed the king of Israel. And he had to wonder, wouldn't it have been much easier for me to be anointed after Saul was gone, after Saul had died? God, why would you anoint me while Saul was still on the throne, because that feels like my circumstances have conspired in such a way to send me into the wilderness. Maybe David was angry with God for a season, bitter with God for, for his circumstance. We certainly know that he aired his complaints before God. But when we come to our passage, we see that there, there doesn't seem to be any anger in David's heart. There doesn't seem to be any bitterness, at least towards God. We see a man who had been strengthened by trust. A man who'd been strengthened by trust. There's two ways this worked out. David seemed to have a strength in trusting God with God's timing. Trusting God with God's timing. Verse 10, he says this. 
or it says this, Behold this day, your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand, into the cave, and some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Think about it this way. David could have ended his wilderness experience in one swift moment. He was the anointed one. He could have ended Saul's life. He could have taken the throne, and no one would have blamed him for it in that moment. In fact, Saul had made so many enemies, probably a lot of people would have been thankful that David had ended Saul's life so they could have a better king who who would sit on the throne. So all of this could be over. All he needed to do was to kill Saul or to have somebody else kill Saul, but he didn't do it. He chose to spare Saul's life. Imagine the temptation that he must have felt in that moment. Imagine it. Think of the current, maybe think of it in your own story. Think of maybe the current wilderness you're living in or a wilderness period from your past and think about all the emotions that are tied into that and all the struggle that is tied into those experiences and now imagine being offered a way of escape from all of those things. It could all be over in just one moment. Imagine the temptation that that would be. And so no doubt David had to think twice about it, but he finally decided not to take Saul's life. For him, it would have been a sin to do so. And one of the small details that we often miss about this story is the very last verse where it says very matter-of-factly, then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Saul went back to the palace, he went back to his throne, but David would have to remain in the wilderness. His wilderness period would need to continue, and that meant he would need to continue trusting in God and continue trusting in God's timing for his circumstances. Perhaps that's one of the hardest lessons for all of us when we're in the wilderness, not only trusting God, but trusting his timing in how our circumstances work out. The second way it worked out is God had to trust God with his injustice too. You see, Saul had put David through a, probably a literal hell. He tried to kill him on multiple occasions. He was maniacal. He was vengeful. He took his anger out on David's family as well. And here in the cave, David had an opportunity for revenge. He had an opportunity for revenge, but he doesn't take it. Why? Because he trusts God to bring about justice. He trusts God to handle it. Verse 12, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. You see, David had trusted God with the injustice of it all. That trust even became the occasion for David to spread grace towards Paul or Saul rather than bring about judgment. Instead of vengeance, he extended grace. Think about it, that in the context of your own story, your own wilderness periods. Maybe you're in the wilderness because of one particular person. Maybe you've been there before. Uh, maybe it's a boss that you work for that makes your life awful. 
and makes your life feel like a wilderness. Maybe it's a family member who seems to, to hold your life hostage. Maybe you've got a, a coworker who's unjustly accused you of something or, or maybe takes the credit for all the work that you do and has made your life difficult and brought you into the wilderness. And maybe God is just saying, like he said to David, just trust me with the injustice. Trust me with the struggle. Trust me to make matters right in my own timing. So David had to learn to trust God with his timing. He had to learn trust, to trust God with the injustices of his life. He had to learn to trust God with his circumstances. Now, friends, I don't need to tell you that this is not our natural inclination to trust God with our lives. Not our natural inclination. Think about your own life. When trouble hits, when adversity knocks at the door, what do we do? All we want to do is apply our own creativity and our own ingenuity to the situation. We want to figure it all out. Our inclination is to to trust in ourselves and to, to trust in our abilities and our skills to deal with the troubles and to deal with the adversities in our life. But sometimes God needs to break us of all that. Sometimes he needs to break us of it. Sometimes we just need to learn to trust God with our circumstances and not ourselves. See, sometimes if we're quick to trust in ourselves, sometimes we short-circuit what God might be doing in our lives, what lessons he wants us to learn. We have to ask, God, what might you be teaching me while I am in this wilderness period? Last thing we see here is that finally, David had to trust God for his salvation. He had to trust God for his salvation. See, David really is is facing insurmountable odds here. Uh, He was against the king. The power of the kingdom was behind him. The power of the military, 3,000 troops here at his resources to kill David and bring an end to his life. And previous to this, David had had all sorts of close encounters with death, lots of very narrow escapes from Saul and his army. And there would be a constant threat even after this story upon David's life several times over several more years. That had to be disheartening for David, but you don't get that sense from him. Instead, you get a sense that he had learned to trust God even in the face of insurmountable odds. Why? Because he had learned to trust God for his salvation. Friends, the gospel tells us that we face some pretty insurmountable odds. The enemies that we face are not a king and an army and a kingdom or a jealous king. Instead, we face the insurmountable odds of sin and death. That's what the gospel tells us. Each one of us has violated God's law. We deserve the wrath and the punishment that is due to sinners who have violated God's law. Each one of us bear the guilt and the shame of that sinfulness. In a sense, if we're going to use our own terms here, each and every one of us are born into the wilderness of sin, cut off from the source of life, estranged from our Heavenly Father. And So what is the answer to this? What is the answer to these insurmountable odds? Well, our inclination is to tackle this the way we tackle all of our other problems. We want to trust in ourselves to figure it all out. Maybe we try to earn our way back into God's favor. 
Maybe we try to substitute God's approval by living for the approval of other people that are around us. Maybe if we can't fix our spiritual resume before God, we're going to work really hard to make our earthly resume perfect in front of everyone else. Or maybe we just work really hard at distracting ourselves from ourselves, distracting ourselves from our deep need for salvation, for our deep need for salvation outside of ourselves. All these things, they're all self-salvation strategies. All of them are attempts to fix ourselves through our own hard work, through trusting in ourselves. But in the end, the gospel tells us that all of these strategies are futile. That all of them are futile. One of the things that makes this passage so rich is that we have two other, we have two psalms. If you turn to the book of Psalms, we have two psalms that are associated to this specific scene in the life of David. One is uh, Psalm 147. You can really see David wrestling with his circumstances in Psalm 147. He cries out to God. He pleads with God. He says, I pour out my complaint before him. I tell him my trouble before him. Deliver me, he shouts to God about his wilderness period. But then if you turn over to Psalm 57, you see that David has sort of learned a lesson here in the wilderness. He says in, the, in Psalm 57, in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. What has David learned? He's learned to trust God for his salvation. Friends, all our attempts at salvation, self-salvation, all of them are futile. We can't overcome the enemy of sin and death. We can't overcome the problem of guilt and shame, but God is our salvation, and he calls us to trust in him. David writes, in the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass. You see, the gospel tells us not only to trust in him, but it tells us of another storm, and this storm was on Mount Calvary. It was the storm of God's wrath against sin and death, and instead of taking refuge, our Savior Jesus Christ bore the storm. He bore up against the storm of God's wrath against sin, and he did it so that when you and I cry out to refuge, we can find it in him. He did it so that you and I can be saved from the wilderness of sin and death. He did it so that you and I can experience salvation, our deepest need, and his greatest gift. Only by trusting in Jesus can we find that true refuge for our soul. Let's pray.